Well, as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the ground, so God's word comes to our souls and waters our souls and causes it to grow. So as you hear the rain, think about God's word, then ignore the rain (laughs) and allow God's word to grow your soul. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, our text this morning will be verse 20, verses 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. This morning I'd like to begin by having you imagine the scene of Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended into heaven. Imagine those 11 disciples there on the Mount of Olives, and they saw Jesus Christ in his resurrected body, feet on the ground, and then he went up in the air, and he was gone. For the last 40 days, Jesus had appeared to them. He, he taught them. The scripture says in Acts 1-3 that he primarily taught them about the kingdom of God. He ate with them. Jesus comforted them. Jesus encouraged them. He forgave Peter. He encouraged Peter and the rest of the disciples to love him by feeding his sheep, by feeding his people with the word of God. They spent time with him as they would have stood on top of that Mount of Olives, that hill. They would have looked down and they would have been able to see the garden where Jesus was betrayed Think about all the memories they had up there. They would have been able to look over to the area where the high priest had his house and his courtyard, where Jesus was tried and condemned. They could have looked forward and seen the temple and the top of the temple mount where Jesus taught for many years, for a few years, I should say. And as they were on that hill, that Mount of Olives, they saw Jesus go into the air, and then what's next? And can you imagine the uncertainty of the disciples? They lost Jesus once, right? Then he rose again, and now it's, he's gone again. What's on their minds at this time? Well, right before he ascended, the Bible says that they had on their minds the kingdom. They said, Jesus, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to us? I mean, they're thinking, is this a time where you're going to, you know, defeat the Romans and this is going to happen? Like, uh, is it right now? When's that going to happen? And Jesus said, well, it's, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Like God does have a plan, but you're not going to know the fine point details. Here's what you should know, that you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you. You're going to go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and all Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then Jesus ascended to heaven. And then they're staring in the sky going, okay, what's next? You remember what happened after that? They turn and there's two angels standing there. And the angels are like, hey guys, why are you looking in the sky still? Why are you still looking up to heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There would have been a lot of uncertainty in the minds of the disciples. Here's 11 guys, and obviously more disciples that Jesus taught beyond that. But there's only a few, and they're supposed to do what? (laughs) 
Go into all the world? What does that mean? How does that work? There was some uncertainty. But there were a few facts, a few truths that Jesus gave them that they could hold on to. Number one, they knew Jesus is in heaven and he's reigning. And they knew that because he rose from the dead. He's sitting on the right hand of the Father. So Jesus is in charge. He's on the throne. They knew their job. They had the Holy Spirit, or they were going to get him, and now they have him, and we are they had him, and now we have the Holy Spirit. And they had a job to go make disciples. And the next thing they knew is that Jesus is coming back again someday. And these truths were to be like anchor points for them to hold on to. There are a lot of uncertainties in our lives, aren't there? When you look at the future, what do you see? <laughs> you have plans five, ten years from now. What do you think your life's going to be like? What's our country going to be like? When we were in Washington, D.C. a couple weeks ago, some of you might not know that, but we went there for a few days to do some touring. I talked to an individual who talks to important people, and he said there's a lot of conversations about in Washington right now in the White House and in the Congress about a possible war with China at some point here. Someone else said, oh, next year it's looking like there's going to be a financial downturn. What's the future look like? Or how about for yourself? What's your job look like in the next couple of years? What's going to happen with your kids in the next couple of years or your grandkids? And the truth is, there's a lot we don't know. But here's what we do know. Jesus is on the throne right now, right? He's in heaven on the throne. We know that he has given us a job. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And we are to go make disciples. And we know this. He is coming back soon. When he comes back, he will resurrect our bodies to life. He will annihilate all evil and the evil one. And the last enemy he will defeat is death. And then he will resurrect a new universe, a new earth, a new heaven. And we will live on that for eternity with our Lord, and God is and will be all in all. And that is really the hope of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28 teaches that because Christ has been raised from the dead, God's plan of resurrection will be fulfilled. He's the king. He was resurrected. He is on the right hand of the Father, and he will ensure the Father's plan is carried out. And the Father's plan is to resurrect us and to resurrect this world to the glory of God the Father. And so we looked at last week the results of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How does the resurrection of Christ affect us now? How does it affect us in the future? Well, first we learn from verse number 20 that because Christ has been raised, like his resurrection, you can be resurrected too. We're not going to go through all these points again, but just to remember verse number 20, look at verse 20. The scripture says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Christ is the first fruits. It means his body was like a seed that was put in the ground. It died, but then it came to life, right? It was, there was a harvest of his body, and it was, he was plucked 
from that harvest. And because he's the first fruits of that harvest, because he has been harvested, he rose from the dead with an eternal resurrected body. Therefore, we have the hope that we will have the same type of resurrection. His body is an eternal, resurrected, incorruptible body that will never die. And because he is the first fruits, we expect that our body will be glorified with the same type of body as his. And so second, because Christ has been raised, at regeneration, your soul is resurrected to life. And we saw that in verse 21 and 22, when we saw that those in Christ are resurrected to life. Look at verse 21, the scripture says, for, so this identifies the reasons that we can be confident in the inevitable resurrection that we will have, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And we saw here last week, the reason that we can have confidence that our bodies will be resurrected is because just like Adam caused the death of all people through his sin, Jesus Christ will cause the resurrection of all those who are in Christ through his victory over sin. And third, because Christ has been raised, number three, at his coming, your body will be resurrected to life. Look at verse 23. The Bible says, but each, speaking of the resurrections that are going to take place, each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. And so here, this is the first coming of Christ when he had his eternal resurrection of his body from the tomb. Then, verse 23, then at his coming, that's the second coming of Christ, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So we are right now living between that first coming and that second coming. And we look back to his first coming and to that resurrection. And then therefore we look forward to his second coming when he promises that he will resurrect our bodies to life as well. And then notice verse 23, because the next major event, or I should say this, the last major event is the end. Verse 24, then comes the end. And our last point is found in verses 24 through verse 29. And that is that because Christ has been raised at the end, you will enjoy the resurrection of all things in full submission to God. Notice verse 24 through 29. I'm going to read it. You can listen as I read. Verse 20 says, I'm sorry, I'm going to read verse 20, uh, 25 through 24 through the end. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him 
who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will enable each one of us in here to hear the word of God, to receive it, and then to obey it by faith. And we know that can only be done by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that his work will be one that convicts, that grows, and that glorifies you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many times that I have been in the hospital and I have stood next to a person and I've heard about their aches and pains. And I've thought to myself, I think when I went to seminary, I should have taken a biology class. Because as a pastor, you learn a lot about people's bodies, particularly when they break. When I was in South Carolina, I used to attend uh, something called a Golden Gems Luncheon. It was for the older people in our church. They did a lunch. And I would sit at the table, and I would listen to them. And often when I'd say, how are you doing? What do you think I heard back? I heard about the aches and pains. Many times, uh, especially when our kids were younger, but we even do it now, we have taken our kids around to see some of the older people in the church, or sometimes just uh, some of the widows and widowers and We want our kids to be around them, to have a relationship with them. But often, again, you hear about the aches and pains. And when you hear those things, what comes to your mind? I know for many people, for many of those who have those aches and pains, they think about the day when they will have a resurrected body. That's really the hope that we have in this world. When when our bodies grown, when creation groans, we look forward to the resurrection that Christ promises us. And so here we see that because Christ has been raised, we can look forward to the resurrection of our own bodies. But our point number four here is that we can look forward to the resurrection of all things in submission to God. In fact, look down in verse number 24. And notice he says, then comes the end. The end is the consummation of all things. It's the conclusion of Christ's sovereign rule over Earth's history. In May of 2024, some in this room may be graduating from school. If you think about school, you have many years of work, of labor. You spend money, or at least your parents spend money. Maybe you do as well. But on that graduation day, you finally receive the diploma, the tassel is moved and you graduate and you move on to what school has prepared you for. It's the end, but it's the end with a new beginning, right? And what we see here in this text, that picture that we have this life and that's the end, but then it's the end with a new beginning. Life for us is like a school. And right now we are preparing for the end that has the beginning of eternity. Verse 24, we see that graduation day. After Christ eliminates all evil, all of God's enemies, including death, then Christ will resurrect this world to a new earth, a new heaven, and we will dwell on that for eternity. And notice verse 24, he will deliver, Christ will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. I think this is what this is described. I think 
I should say what is being described here is what we see in Revelation 21. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and he, that's Christ, who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I make all things new. And so Christ there resurrects this world, and we live on that world, that earth for eternity with him. Notice the beginning of verse 24 describes the end, the consummation of all things, but then there's two events that must precede that. At the end, Christ will cause, notice, all things, all people and creation to be in full submission to him. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end, and notice these two things. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, and the second thing, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So these two events must take place before the end. And you actually could almost read this verse backwards to see the sequence of these things. Because at the very end of verse 24, you see Christ will destroy all the powers and enemies, all his enemies. Before that, um, then after that, he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. And then at the very end is the end. So look at verse 24, and what is the kingdom he's talking about there? He said, he, that's Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. What is the kingdom here? Well, this is talking about the kingdom of God. You can read about that in the Gospels, or if you're in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. And the word heaven is a substitute for God. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is his right to rule and reign as sovereign over all. And the kingdom of God really has two aspects. There's an individual, personal aspect, where where God has the right to rule each of our hearts. Then the kingdom of God has a universal aspect, whereby God has authority and power over all creation, all history, and all powers, invisible, invisible. And so the kingdom of God is his right to rule and reign as a sovereign of all within our hearts and over all things. And God exercises that authority, that right to rule through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the king whom God has appointed as the one to exercise the authority of God over all things. The incarnation really was the fulfillment of God's promise to send the son to be the Messiah, to sit on David's throne, to reign as God's king. And so if you can imagine John the Baptist, when he was preaching out there in the wilderness, he was preaching what? He preached, repent for the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John the Baptist was preaching that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's about to come. We're on the cusp of it. The the king is about to be here and we must submit to him. And how did he, John the Baptist, prepare people to meet the king? Well, he preached to them about sin. He preached to them about how they have rebelled against God. So he saw soldiers and he said, you're a bunch of bullies. And he saw the tax collectors and said, you're cheats. He saw the religious leaders and he says, you act like hypocrites. And what he did was he preached, the, he preached to them about their sin so they would confess their sin, they would repent of their sin, and then look to the Savior. And so Jesus is a king to whom we submit by confessing our sinfulness, 
but also Jesus is a king who can save you from your sins, which is why John the Baptist says, behold, said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's a king whom you should submit to and confess, I've sinned against you and against the Father, but also he's a king you should trust to save you. And that's why when Jesus came, Jesus, he preached, the time was fulfilled. It's here. Here's the king. I'm the Messiah. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so Jesus' call was to believe the good news, to repent and believe the good news. When Jesus was ministering on earth, he spoke many times about the kingdom. And he said, the kingdom is something you are to receive. It's something that you are to receive. As Jesus ministered, one day he ministered and they brought him, parents brought him children. So you can imagine these little toddlers being handed over to Jesus. And Jesus looked at these toddlers and he used them as an illustration of how does someone receive the kingdom of God. And he said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter into it. And what are children like? Children are dependent. Children are needy. Children are humble. And so we must receive God's rule like children in absolute dependence and submission to Christ the King. And in Mark chapter 10, you see a rich man walks up and he thinks, well, I got money, I got power. Can I earn my way into the kingdom? And Jesus says, no, it's impossible. In fact, man, humans can't do anything to earn anything before God. He says it's impossible for man, but it's only possible to enter into the kingdom if you enter by God. For man, it's impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. And so that's why he talks to Nicodemus at night in Matthew, or in John chapter 3, verse 3. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, you can't enter into the kingdom of God unless God supernaturally brings you into the kingdom. Unless he supernaturally causes you to be born again. And so the kingdom of God has something to do with the inside of you. And it's it's the fact that your nature is changed. Your very nature is changed by the Holy Spirit. You're born again. You're changed from above. So... Christ taught about the kingdom as something that's personal. It's your heart submitting to the Lord, and it's the Holy Spirit doing such a work in your heart that you are born into the kingdom of God. So here's a question that all of us must ask or answer, and that is, have you been born again? Are you in the kingdom of God? And then if you are, are you living like one of his kingdom subjects? Are you living like one who is in the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that we are to seek first the kingdom of God. If you are a kingdom subject, then what should be your priority? If you truly love the king, then what will you want to do? You want to love the king. If, if you truly are in the kingdom, then you will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and trust God for everything else. That's why he taught that we are to pray Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in prayer. Our prayer is 
that we and those around us would submit to the loving rule of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. So the kingdom of God has something to do with the inside of you submitting to Christ as your king in every area of your life, but also relates to God's universal rule over all powers in all creation. So what we see taking place in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, is Jesus is the king who rules and as appointed by the Father, and then he hands over, in the very end, he hands over the kingdom, the final kingdom to the Father. And what does that include? All those who have trusted in Christ by faith, and it includes all of creation resurrected to the glory of of God. So look at verse 24. Then comes the end, and he, it's Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, and then notice, after he destroys every rule and every authority and power. So the other event that must take place is that he puts down, he destroys, he annihilates anything that opposes the rule, the reign of God. And verses 25 through 27 describe when that time is that he finally vanquishes all of God's enemies. So look at verse 25. Scripture says, For he, that's Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So notice in verse 25, Christ reigns until that time, until that final time where he puts all his enemies under his feet. In other words, what is Christ doing right now? What's he doing right now? Well, he must, what? Reign. What's Christ doing right now? He's ruling and he is reigning. The reign of Christ is future, yes, but the reign of Christ is also still present He is on the throne. Jesus is the the king who is ruling according to the father's plan. And here's the question. Like, how do we see that on earth? Right? I mean, we see the, we hear the rain, right? You might have been watching the forecast and you see hurricanes and you see things that like happen in, in Maui and you hear about wars and you think about all the things that are happening in this world. So, So how is Christ ruling and reigning? Well, definitely he oversees all those things, right? Definitely it's according to his will. But what is is he doing in this world that we can see his rule and his reign? Well, would you turn over with me to to Ephesians chapter 1? Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Because what we see in Ephesians 1 is a parallel passage about the rule, the reign of Christ on this earth right now. And we see him alluding to some of these same uh, truths, but we're going to see something very special because actually what he does in Ephesians 1 is he applies it to the church. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 19. Here the Father has given us the Holy Spirit. And so verse 19, we can know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So we're seeing the resurrection of Christ, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. So he's on the throne in heaven, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion 
and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to, notice that, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we could go through and notice a lot of the parallels between these two passages, but observe in Ephesians 1, that the father has put all things under his feet. So Jesus is on the throne. He's put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. Notice to the church, Jesus rules and reigns as the head of the church. Jesus is exercising his authority in and through the church. Christ's rule, his kingdom is being built in his church. Like we are in the kingdom of God and it's being built through his church. We go out with the gospel and we are building his kingdom by the power of his Holy Spirit. And this means that the kingdom of God is not some distant thing that's in the future that we're like, you know, hopefully someday we can be a part of, we can see that the kingdom of God is something that is taking place right now. God is building his kingdom right now. And so Christ must rule within us and Christ must extend his rule through us. And that's why in Matthew chapter 28, you see Jesus, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then what does he say after that? He's speaking to his disciples. He's saying, I have all authority. I'm the king. So what's going to happen? I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And he says, go, therefore, and make disciples. This means what we do as a church, when we gather as a church, when we go as a church, what we do as a church matters for eternity and in the kingdom of God. What, what you do when you disciple someone, when you give the gospel to someone, do you realize you're a part of kingdom work? You're building the kingdom of God. It's important. I was watching the news this past week about Maui. I read some news about Ukraine and some other things happening around the world. And you know one thing you don't see in the news, one thing they don't really show you is the church. But can I tell you, I can guarantee you from letters we get from missionaries, from other reports that we hear, that the church is present. That if you were on the ground in those very needy places, that the church is there loving people. There was a group last week from our church who packed up boxes of food at Children's Hunger Fund, and they told us this food was going to one of those needy places, and they're not just taking a, tr a truck and dumping it off. They actually take them to churches, and churches, they distribute that. See, that's what's happening around the world. Churches are the ones in the front lines who are taking in the needy. They're the ones who are feeding the hungry. They're the ones that are helping those who are sick. They're the ones who are giving the gospel. I was reading about a missionary named David Livingston and a lot of modern universities and scholars are trying to cancel him because they say he was a, colonial, a, um, a colonizer and they were saying that he was just a you know, European trying to colonize Africa, which could be nothing further from the truth. That's just completely not true. He was on the front lines of the gospel. But sometimes people look at him, sometimes even Christians, and think, well, 
What did he really do? Like, only a few converts came from his ministry, right? Well, I was reading about a report from a guy named Troy Frazier. He works for Revive Studios. He's also a missionary himself. And he records this. David Livingston was the first to link a certain type of uh, something, I don't really know how to pronounce the word for it, but he was able to find the link to cure malaria. And all of his notes were used to enable the curing of that disease. Also, they were able to use his notes to cure a disease called sleeping disease. Have you heard of sleeping disease? No, you probably haven't because it's not something that is really well known today. But back at this time, it would wipe out entire villages. In fact, it wiped out half of Uganda at one time. And through his work, Dr. Livingston had a man with him named John Kirk. And John Kirk reported the horrors of the African slavery back to Europe and eventually made it so that slavery was abolished. And it was through the work of David Livingston and John, Dr. John Kirk. He also opened up the doors for hundreds of missionaries to come and give the gospel. And you hear about a number of missionaries, and they were able to go there and not die because they had the ability to fight diseases, but they're able to go there and give the gospel because of David Livingston. In fact, some have said, well, he was saying here that as the result of David Livingston's kingdom work, millions of lives in Africa, millions of Africans were saved from slavery, were saved from disease, were saved from disease, but also millions of souls were saved from hell. In other words, God used him. What, what David Livingston did in the middle of nowhere Africa is he was on the front lines for the kingdom of God. I was reading an article in Christianity Today that reported that, this was from last month, that reported about persecution in northern India, in Manipur, Manipur, India. And it says, in this article, it says that since May of 2023, 140 Christians have been murdered. 300 churches attacked. 65,000 people have been displaced from their homes. Now, that's not in the news either, right? It's interesting they don't report that kind of stuff. But when you hear about stuff like that, what does that make you think about the rule, the, the reign of Christ? I mean, you might think, well, is he on the throne? But if you were boots on the ground in that area what you would see is that the church is there showing love when others are showing hate. That the church is bringing in people and caring for those who are rejected. The church is preaching good news when there's bad news all around. And what you see in India and what you see in places like Iran and China and other places where, places where there's intense persecution is you see the gospel, kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom being preached And you see Christ ruling and reigning in God's people and through God's people as the gospel goes forth and changes lives. Do you realize there is more authority in the church? There's more authority in this room right here as a church of Lighthouse Bible Church. There's more authority in here than there is in any office building in Washington, D.C., than there is in any party in communist party in China, than any dictatorship in South America. Do you realize that God's power is here in his church? He is building his kingdom. 
in and through the church. So we gather as a church to worship Jesus the King, and we go as his church to proclaim Jesus as King. And so because Christ has been raised, at the end, you, if you're a believer in Christ, will enjoy the resurrection of all things in full submission to God. Look, notice down in verse number 25. You can see that in verse 25 where the scripture says, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. We saw that in Ephesians 1. We see that here. What's he talking about here? Well, this is a quote from Psalm 110. 1. Psalm 110 pictures the Messiah. He's on his throne. His enemies are down on the ground bowing in submission. Psalm 110.1 is the most uh, quoted verse in the New Testament. I should say it's the most Old Testament verse quoted in the New Testament. Martin Luther called Psalm 110 a psalm so precious that it should be overlaid with precious jewels. We don't have time. I don't have time to preach through Psalm 110, so you can read that on your own. But why is that such an important Psalm. Why is that phrase, until he has put all his enemies under his feet, so important? Well, that psalm is a prophecy of the Father placing Christ the Messiah as the divine king who rules over all creation. And this king is prophesied to cause all nations, all of God's enemies, to submit to him. So who are the enemies of God? That's probably the next question we should ask. Who are the enemies of God? Well, obviously Satan and those demons are his enemies. But also the scripture speaks of nations being the enemy of God. Psalm 2 says the kings of the earth, those nations, those governments, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, against Christ against the king, and they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I mean, isn't that what our country is saying? Our government and other governments around the world, right? It's like, let's cast off the restraints of God and of morality. How does God respond to that? Well, he who sits in the heavens, he who sits in the throne, that's Christ, he laughs. And he's not laughing, mocking them. He's laughing, saying that this is going to come to nothing. Like, you're, you're, it's, it's all vain. It's all empty. The Lord holds them in derision. That's what Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 is speaking about, that Christ is the one on the throne, and he will, and he does, put God's enemies in their place. So the nations are the enemies of God. Each, you know, each person born into this world is born as an enemy of God. That's why you need to be reconciled by Christ, as Romans 5.10 says. Do you realize also that sometimes as Christians that we can be the enemies of God? That's what it says in James chapter 4. When you follow the desires of this world, when you follow the lusts of your own heart, when you divide and you argue and you hurt people, do you know that you are stepping to the side of the enemy? And he says that you are an enemy of God. You're acting like an enemy of God. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever would be a friend of the world, whoever desires like the world and follows the patterns of the world, you're an enemy of God. And so how many of us have stepped on the wrong side this week? Right? How we've treated our spouse and how we treated our siblings and how we acted at work. Like when we oppose God's will, when we live outside of God's will, we're living as an enemy of God. And what does God want us to do? How does God want us to respond when we live like that as his children? Well, we should confess it, right? Actually, James 4 says, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Like humble yourself before God. And God promises to give you the best gift ever. What's the best gift ever? It's grace. It's grace. It's his love poured out to us through the Holy Spirit. What about the proud? The proud are opposed by God. That's what we see here in 1 Corinthians 15. At the end, Christ will oppose the proud with the final extermination. Satan and his fallen demons will be cast into hell. All nations and people who oppose him, those who never repented of their sins and believed in the gospel, they'll be vanquished to eternal hell. Notice verse 26, the last enemy in verse 26, the last enemy to be abolished is death. And you can read about the description of that in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation 20, there's a description of Jesus Christ sitting on the great white throne judgment. And he is there to judge the nations, all those who rejected him. And the scripture says that he will resurrect the unbelievers, those who never submitted to him. They will be judged, found guilty, and be cast into the lake of fire. This is the last human resurrection. It's one of a resurrection of unbelievers to eternal damnation. And honestly, when we think about that, or if you go to Revelation 20, you read that, that should be very sobering. If you're not a believer, it should be very, very frightening. But for us as believers, it should be motivating for us to go out and give the gospel to those who need Jesus Christ. Do you really believe that's true? I think that's a question when I read that kind of stuff in Revelation 20, we think about that. Do we really believe it's true? If we really believe it's true, how would that change how we talk to people? that have that as their, their destiny if they don't receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that reality should motivate us to invite them into the kingdom, to give them the gospel. But the Bible says in Revelation 20, 14, the very end, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So death is the last enemy Christ will permanently subdue. And then look at verse 27. Verse 27 tells us the reason why Christ must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Let's stop right there. Just want you to notice that that phrase is a quotation from Psalm 8. And if you look at the word his feet right there in Psalm 8, that's speaking of Adam, the very first human God created. So in Psalm 8, the scripture is saying, God has put all things in subjection under Adam's feet. That's how God originally intended. That's what God's plan was, is for man, humanity, to be, have dominion over the earth, to take, take care of the earth. 
But that was ruined by sin, right? Man has a, a distorted view of reality. Man doesn't operate and rule in a way that's righteous. And so what the scripture is saying here, actually, Christ is the second Adam. I should say it like this. He's the last Adam who has earned the right to rule and have dominion on earth. And he will restore what the first Adam ruined. So in verse 27, when God has put all things in subjection under his feet, that's Jesus. That's the second Adam. It's, it's him giving Jesus the right to rule and reign creation. And then notice verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, that's God, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him, that's Jesus. In other words, he says in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. What this text is teaching is that the son is, yes, equal with the father. He's equal in his nature. He's equal in his essence. There's one God, three persons. Each person is equal. So the son is equal with the father in his nature, but the son is subordinate in his role. That's what this text is teaching. God the Father has put all things under the authority of the Son, Jesus, and the Son puts himself under the authority of the Father. So the Son here is subjected. He's submitting to the Father. And our world hates that word, that word submit, don't they? And they hear that word submit, submission, and that's something that our world does not like. But can I tell you, this passage right here is telling us that that word is actually a very wonderful word. Notice the very end of verse 28, that God is all in all. God is glorified. Do you realize that God is most glorified through this order of authority? The son calls all people to submit to his loving rule. So that's actually glorifying to God. And the son eternally submits to the father. And you're like, why are you going on this? Because we live in a society that hates the idea of submission. Like we're, we live in America where we want to take our tea and throw it in the Chesapeake Bay, right? And that might be all well and good for a revolution. But it's not how God wants us to operate within his, the relationships that he puts in our life. One of the themes of 1 Corinthians is the importance of God's order of authority and submission within. Do you realize that God wants us to live in sweet submission to Christ, but also to those whom Christ has put over us? I think about someone who goes to school, or think about someone who has a job and you have a boss, or think about someone who's in a family and you have parents, or your wife, you have a husband, and, and, and sometimes when you bring those things up with people, I've had times in counseling where I've brought up that word submission and people have almost fallen out of their seat. You think I'd cursed or something. But I want you to recognize in this text, actually, it's not something that is bad. It's actually something that's wonderful. It's actually beautiful. It's actually how God orders things. We are to joyfully submit to Christ in all areas of our life. Christ 
reigns now and at the end. He will put down all of his enemies. He will resurrect all things to be in full submission to his father. And then he will turn it over to his father. He'll deliver it to him. And can I tell you, when all things are in their proper order of submission and authority, do you realize that's paradise? That's joy. That's blessedness. Because God is a God who is love. He's faithful. He's good. And when he rules over us, he rules in love and faithfulness and goodness. When evil is gone and all enemies are are no more, and our bodies and our world is resurrected, God will reign as the unchallenged sovereign of all. God will be all in all. Everything anyone needs, God is and will be forevermore. As we conclude, I think it's good for us to think about how we can apply this, thinking about some of the things we've already talked about. I think, first of all, to ask a few questions, and number one is, are you living in joyful submission to Christ? Does every, is every area of your life, is it submitted to the Lord? Is he the, the king over what you think about? Is he the king of your marriage? Is he the king of your attitude? Is the Lord really, truly ruling your inner person? Are you living in humility within the relationships that God has put you? And I think the, another one to think about is, are you living now for that which is to come, and that is the eternal kingdom that God has for us. Are you right now doing gospel work? Are you discipling? Are you making disciples? Are you giving the gospel? Are you praying for your church? Are you building one another up? Are you considering eternity when you think about the present? May Christ rule and reign in our hearts and in our church, and may Christ extend his kingdom through us as well. Let's pray.